Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Spend lots of time on your device? Then spend some of that time with us. WSJ Podcasts, the sound of success. Coming up. Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, the latest trend in the IPO market is uh, to get bought out by another company, not to go public at all. And a couple of really big meetings this week, the ECB and OPEC. We'll talk about it all. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets, and then some. Now, from New York, ready to give you the business, here's the Money Beat crew. Welcome back from the long Thanksgiving weekend, everybody. Paul Vigna, Eric Holmes, Stephen Grosser, and Telus Demos here with you. Uh, we're about to give you everything and then some. We are going to start off with, interestingly enough, folks, uh, our friend Telus sitting to my right here has a good story in the paper today about IPOs. And, you know, you, you think, uh, Telus, it used to seem like an IPO was kind of the surefire way for some of these private companies to cash in on their valuation, on their promise, their potential, all those things. Uh, this year has not been a great year for U.S. IPOs. And if what your story, what I get out of your story is that it's gotten so bad that they're they're actually giving up on the whole idea. Well, they're giving up on the idea because we're in this weird place where the IPO market is shrinking and the M&A market is booming. Uh, so it turns out that Strategic buyers, other private equity firms are now more are now willing to pay a higher price for your company than the public market is. It's a weird phenomenon where buyers are being rewarded by stock investors for buying companies, which is pretty unusual. And that's because they, you know, investors think that if companies buy other rivals, that they can cut costs, that they can get larger, that they can grow in an economy where growth is scarce. Um, and so they're willing to pay more for a company, essentially, to become part of another company than for that company to stand alone that they would pay for it in an IPO. That's usually not the case, right? The case is that, okay, you'll sell the whole company at a little bit of a discount that you would to the IPO market because then you sell it in one chunk. You don't have to do the IPO and then a bunch of smaller stock offerings along the way. So for that to be reversed is a very unusual situation, one that we haven't seen in a number of years. Well, one of the questions I have, tell us, is, it has to do with, is this more of a product of, first, the market this year being range-bound and not moving? And secondly, does it also have to do with the type of deals that you're very much seeing in the M&A market. I mean, you're seeing what we traditionally, you know, call the horizontal deals where, you know, you can get a lot of synergies, lower tax rates, do things like that that you can, you know, you can pay pay a higher multiple because you can, you know, you'll get uh you know, you have a ton of synergies you can draw. Yeah, you're definitely seeing those consolidation-type deals happening here. For example, one of the recent ones, I know Eric is a huge fan, of Ballast Point oh, Brewing and Spirits uh, was bought by Constellation, uh, a, a larger sort of spirits and, and beer company. Um, and so they can take this craft brewer, plug it into their bigger network of distributors and stuff, uh, and essentially just add a new product. It's not like a transformative deal for them. They're not getting into some new kind of business. They're just doing more of the same thing. Another deal we saw earlier this year, we saw UPS buy Coyote Logistics, which is sort of a, you know, kind of a small, tiny, mini version of what, you know, UPS does, which is, you know, figure out how to get, you know, something on a truck from 
from you know one side of the country to the other. So you are seeing the same types of deals, the same types of companies abandon IPOs and go to M and A that you're seeing in the broader market, which is where you're seeing telecoms and healthcare companies all consolidate. Not because they think that they see some opportunity in a new business, but because they just want to kind of, you know, capture more of their existing D- business. Does this matter to the street, to the investment banks? Or are is M and A as profitable or more profitable than IPOs? I mean, if the business is shifting, are the banks being hurt or are they being rewarded? Which is more lucrative? I think it hurts the banks in the long run. M&A sometimes might have a, a, a bigger fee than an IPO would just because you're selling the whole company rather than a piece of it. But an IPO comes with lots of little follow-on businesses. Like there are, like I said, several stock offerings that follow after an IPO. You know, an IPO only sells 20% of the company maybe. You've got to sell the rest of it through a bunch of other offerings. Companies that go public also themselves consume investment banking services. They might buy someone. They might offer issue bonds in the future. Now none of that's going to happen. All of that just gets consolidated into the book of business that they do with the with the parent company. Uh, and so they're, they're essentially losing a client over the, the next several years. So it's, it's not a great trend for the deal business either. It definitely is everyone saying, you know what, let's just stuff everything into the sort of the big company box. Let's let the big get bigger and take all the risk off the table of like trying to kind of grow your own competitor. How much of this is also um, the type of companies? I mean, what type of companies are the ones that are drawing the the buyout interest, the M and A interest? I mean, are they tend to be the, your older, more mature companies? Stayed maybe, you know, a company from the bi, you know the bio boom of two thousand seven, two thousand six. Or, you know, how many of them are the hot, young, you know, sort of tech startups that we, you know, think about? It's a great question. It's actually, it's not really the hot, young tech startups. Those guys face the, the, the challenge of either going an IPO and sort of facing a kind of discount to their private valuation or just sort of hanging in there and waiting to do the IPO. Their problem is right. look- some of these they don't have to do an IPO, right? Right, right. Yeah, they're yeah. they're they're not looking. Th- their problem is they're looking for prices that are unrealistic to any buyer, not M and A versus IPO, and so they're kind of stuck. The ones that we're seeing are typically the larger, more mature companies. A lot of them are owned by like private equity firms. So, for example, Petco was the most recent one. Petco is obviously a big retailer that's been around for a while. That got sold by one private equity group to another. You know, I always come back to thinking about Facebook's IPO and Mark Zuckerberg and the way he kind of resisted going public. He didn't really want to do it. And I wonder if is part of this what we're seeing and what you wrote about part of a very long-term trend in terms of how the capital markets are changing and how companies are finding different avenues to access to capital. Absolutely. No, the IPO has been a disappearing product for 15 years now. And has, you know, it's a it's a child with many parents um including, you know, some people say the red tape of going of going public has increased the cost and the burden and the expense of that. Um other people say that that the, the advent of like very large companies in the technology industry and in the biotechnology industries in particular have changed that dynamic a lot. So, you know, back in 99 or 2000, there wasn't a Google or an Amazon who could buy you. I mean, those companies had just started. Nowadays, if you're a cool startup, there's a pretty good chance that you might get bought by a Facebook or, right. or Google um, at, at a very early age. And so there's there's many reasons that you wouldn't go public, that you would access some other form of capital, like you said, like being acquired 
Or nowadays, in the last couple of years, we've seen this phenomenon of sort of private funding. So I think a lot of those small companies that might have gone public in earlier years aren't. There's also questions of like market structure. People don't want to be traded in the world of mm-hmm. flash crashes and the high frequency this is and that's is, you know, that 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 all stuff sort of scares companies away from the public markets is is one of the other theories. But I think to 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 Steve's point earlier about just like the type of stock market we're in, I think, you know, like everything, this can kind of be connected to sort of the, the, the Fed bubble or whatever you want to call it in the sense that, um, you know, the, the Federal Reserve has made debt very cheap, but people are worried that raising rates will have a big impact on the stock market. So if you're an acquirer, you can sell some debt in order to make an acquisition at a much sort of more cost-efficient way yeah. than it would be to go public, where public investors are saying, geez, look, I don't know what's going to happen on the market next year. I really need to increase my discount rate because rates are going to go up next year. I can't be buying companies at the same price. So you are seeing you know, that that split in the market is, I think, what maybe is the underlying story right. here. Uh, you mentioned the Federal Reserve, and that's a I don't know if you planned it, but that's a beautiful segue into our, our next segment. I did. I planned everything. You did? Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we will come back with some thoughts on some very big meetings this week. Traveling on business? Then take us along and stay on track. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, from New York, ready to give you the business, here's the Money Beat crew. Uh, I'm going to laugh about that every single time I hear it. Paul Vigna, Eric Holmes, Stephen Grosser, tell us Demos with you. Is that what, what, what Grosser? I just want to say, got? do you remember a few years ago? This was probably more than a few years ago. This was probably 20, 25 years ago. The ref who called the on, you know, unsportsman like Oh, of course. It's yeah. an all-timer. Yeah. The business? He's giving it. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> I, I, every time I hear that. Nice. All right. All right. So we're giving you the business. Uh, you know, it's interesting. There are a couple of very, very big meetings this week. The Federal Reserve, we were just mentioning them, is not one of them. Their big meeting comes later this month. But what happens this week at the European Central Bank especially uh, could have some – not a, I don't want to say an effect on what the Fed does, but in terms of the market dynamics between those two central banks uh, could have a very big effect. Right, Grosser? Yeah, no, it could be. I mean, well, I mean, first of all, you have the simple fact that the Fed – and the ECB are diverging in policy, right? Um, and and that's going to have you know continue, have continued effect on uh, you know the currencies. Um, I think this year the the dollar's up twelve percent, I believe, um, versus the euro. Um, and everyone's expecting that you know the deposit rate, uh, the ECB to lower that, and um, for it to also you know um, add to. Um, quantitative easing, one of your favorite um, yeah, right. uh, words. Right. So the ECB meets on on Thursday, Thursday, and everyone expects them to do this. Look, they, they want to push the euro down. They are going across Europe, across the continent. They are going deeper and deeper into negative rates, where where longer, not long term maturities, but but longer term maturities increasingly are going into negative rates. Uh, I think the even on the the German ten year, the yield is under. Point five. I mean, it's less than half a percent on 10-year debt of the German government. And then you have the Fed meets in a couple of weeks. Uh, they're gingerly going in the other direction. Let's not kid ourselves. And I think that's the real right, issue. They're not rushing out the door here. Right, 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 right. right. I mean, I think that's But the, the Friday jobs report sort of going to – I mean, it, it would have to be abysmally bad at this point for them not to – Oh yeah, do a tiny little rate hike, right. 
Right. I mean, they have they have they have telegraphed it so much. They have foreshadowed it so heavily. I mean, if they didn't do it now, it, it would be a horrible misstep. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, and I think, I think that, in, in, in many ways, it would have to be even worse than the jobs report being bad. It would also like it would have to come with a lot of market turbulence. Um, in the next couple of weeks to really, I think, scare, spook right. the Fed into Which, not doing it. Which, you know, on, unless something really, really big happens, that's not, we're not going to see that. The how markets much, are pretty calm right now. How much do you think that the, that the timing of the ECB's kind of move to, to, to keep tightening or plays is, is based on the fact that we in the U.S. here are starting to loosen a little bit? Because that matters, right? That differential starts to matter, right? If you're deciding, like, where to put your money oh, to yeah. work, and you, you want to do it in a place where rates are, are low rather than going, although right. although it actually makes their job a little bit harder, right, because the U.S. becomes a more attractive place for for, well, for, uh, for money when rates are going, that, right, like deposit yeah, money. And, and yeah. You mean it the other way, the ECB is loosening the Fed's That's right, tightening. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it creates a situation where, look, the easy money is now going to go into the dollar. They're going to, they should be going into and bonds. And it is, it already and is. And it is, yeah, yeah. right, and that, that has been happening to different extents. For, to various extents for a while now. And if the ECB does more on Thursday that drives the euro down even lower, drives the dollar up, and then the Fed actually raises rates, drives the dollar up. Although, again, the Fed's going to you know move off zero to 0. 0.25. They are not going wild here. They are going to move very slowly. Who even knows if they're going to do something in 2016 after that? So, right. And to tell us this point, the the Fed is somewhat handcuffed by the ECB because y- y- right. the, the dollar can only get right. so strong right. before it starts to have you know bad uh, even worse effects on right. on the U.S. economy. And, and so, even so though, does Europe then make it harder for us to raise rates? I think it does. Oh, to an extent, yeah, to yeah, an, yeah. To, certainly well, to an extent. I mean, th- that's the, been true with Japan also, for a while, right? It also should keep rates here lower, so you you won't have like the taper tantrum. Um, that you saw when the you know when the, like right. you know in 2013, right? Yeah, I think the, the the opinion of the of the capital markets right now would be a lot different if they thought that the Fed was going to raise rates in December and keep raising rates at every meeting, a quarter point, a half a basis point. Yeah, you know, if they thought that the Fed was really going to aggressively tighten, you would have a much different reaction. And, and to right Yellen's now. credit, and the other folks at the Fed, they have. Made clear that just because they raise once doesn't mean that they're going to go out and hike, hike, right. hike, hike. I mean that was well, key, yeah, right. that was the exactly. key takeaway from the October minutes. Exactly, and you right. saw the market, you know, rally on that. It wasn't, you know, even though <laughs> they made clear that they thought they could raise rates in December, yeah. it was the fact that they weren't going to be doing this fast. And I think the pace was the most important. I thing. think a big issue is, and the, the Fed, and look, the Fed's job is to manage the U.S. economy, and that's what they'll always say, but. They are the world's preeminent central bank. They are essentially the world's central bank. And what they do affects the world. And you have seen emerging markets suffer tremendously just at the thought that the Fed is going to raise rates because that changes the money flows. That changes where people want to put their dollars to work, their their currency to work, however you want to phrase it. So, you know – this is a very fragile situation, which is another reason the Fed is going to moving, be moving so slowly. Well, I'd also like to get back to a point that sort of TELUS was hinting at earlier. Was uh, interestingly earlier this year when e- when the ECB began quantitative easing, um, you, you know, everyone expected going into the year that the U.S. stock market was the place to be. It was the best place of the you know the worst lot. You know, 
But in fact, uh, both Japan and um, European stocks outperformed the U.S. in the first half. And that was because that's where the quantitative easing. So, I mean, you wonder when the tightening actually comes, Mm -hmm. you know, after this December, if you're going to see a rally in, you know, European stocks. Well, at the expense of U.S.? Yeah. And and you're already seeing seeing the the IPO market. As Papa Grosser pointed out earlier, you're seeing the IPO market in Europe running at about twice the volume that the U.S. is, which has been the total reverse of the last few years, where the U.S. has been the only IPO market in the world that's open while Europe and Asia have been shut. Let's uh, let's talk about the other big meeting this week, which is OPEC. And uh, I know we all write about the energy market a lot here, right? Tell us, gross <laughs> uh, We don't really write about the energy. We, we write about the equities market mostly, folks. Well, but you're a high energy, energy guy, Paul. So that I works, am a high. Yes, yeah, so that works. So OPEC meets on. I think the meeting's Friday, right? Gross It's after the. It's, the yeah, it's, yeah. it's Friday, and it's going to be a contentious one. Very contentious. Very contentious. Um, basically, many of the members think that the Saudi Arabian policy of not of not cutting back their production levels has been a failure. Um, and they want uh, Saudi Arabia to cut back. But Saudi Arabia is going to – it looks like it's going to hold um, to its line. Yeah. I mean you get into this whole thing of it, the, the politics of it where the Saudis don't want the Iranians to get any market share on them, which they fear they do if they'll cut production. And uh, Iranian sanctions come off, so the Iranians can ramp up. But the Iranian, everyone's suffering because the Saudis won't cut production. The whole thing is this big jumble, and that's why you see uh, prices, WTI crude, hovering just over $40. And there's a lot of fear that if it goes under 40 you're going to reach some new plateau where the next you know the next drop down becomes 20 and all kinds of more additional pain in the energy sector so this this meeting is really a you know really important one it some, seems like if they can, if, have. if they can't figure out what to do like if if OPEC can't be on the same page and make a decision that helps all of them, right, which is the original point of right. OPEC, yeah, is to right. have a coalition of, of countries that would collectively increase or decrease production. If they can't get their act together to rescue oil from, from the slump it's been in yeah. over the years, what is the point of OPEC? I mean, I think I think the, the, the credibility of the organization is, is, is r- really what, what could be damaged terribly by this and and essentially if i'm an, if i'm an oil trader and i see that saudi and 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 iran are are, are, are trying to game each other here and not speaking with one voice right, i mean right. it seems like i i would be betting on on a long bear market yeah. in oil because if if these guys are now playing games with each other then 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 there is no opec essentially there is no coalition there's just a bunch of people squabbling and, the, and like like it was pre-opec right right i mean you have to think that there are a lot of members who are lining up against Saudi Arabia in this in this fight? Um, you know that have taken their right. the, seems the, like all of them. Yeah, like <laughs> their government balance sheets are taking a yeah. nice solid hit. And and I mean, and this is I mean, like bringing this back to stocks. This is a big story for um, U.S. investors because you know uh, the S and P earnings growth rate has been decimated by you know the impact of uh, oil prices. Well, and, and what it's and done it, to the energy sector, and it turned, right, and we right. sometimes talk about how low, low oil prices are good for other businesses. Not good enough, it turns out. Like the net effect it, on the stock market right, is and, still negative. And it hasn't, I, you know, you have to wonder how much it's actually bled through. I mean, because you know, one of the things is for the effect of low oil to actually, you know, reach the consumer so that they're going to go out and spend more money. That takes time. 
And it affects the Fed's thinking because inflation is still yeah, yeah. basically yeah, well, nil. That, that, that all works when your and wages are going up. When your wages yeah, aren't that, going up, yeah. the gas price doesn't. All right. New can of worms you open there, Grocer. But we'll, uh, we have to leave it there. We will catch you later this week. on. Probably we'll talk to you again on Friday when we will have – we can talk about the ECB and OPEC and the jobs report. Big podcast coming up on Friday, folks. So uh, keep it tuned in. See you then. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.